done in the early church, and hopefully throughout the ages and the decades of the church till today, everything that is done is done in the name of Jesus. Jesus is still the main character of this story. Um, so it is, like I said, the story of the early church. It's the story of the disciples, the apostles, who carry forth the message that was given to them by Christ from God. And so they are carrying out then the mission, God's mission, into the world. This is, it's a huge responsibility, but they're also given authority. And so they can they teach and they heal and the Holy Spirit is upon them. And that's God's spirit and that guides them and, and urges them. And so they begin to speak and preach and heal and people love that. And so they want to be a part of it. And so they start getting followers and people to gather around them who are like, yes, I am drinking that Kool-Aid. And the exciting thing is that People from all over, from all different walks of life, from high and low, and, and men and women, they're all gathering together as a Christian, as an Ian of Christ, as a follower of Christ. And the interesting thing is they're preaching, they're hearing the good news that Christ has died for their sins, that they can be forgiven, that they are freed, and, and they, have rede- they are redeemed, and they love that. They want to in. But what's so cool is that they cannot, there's no such thing as being a believer in Christ and not being a part of the Christian community. There's no such thing. It doesn't even make sense to them. If you believe in Christ, then you are part of this community. That's what it means to believe in Christ is to be a part of this community. So like I said, as people from all different walks of life are listening, there starts to be some tension going on in that little community of Christ. Because people are people, am I right? People are people. And sometimes people are good and sometimes people are bad. And sometimes people get along and sometimes people don't get along. And that causes tension when you put a large group of people together, doesn't it? So at first it was just a bunch of Jews. Because, you know, Jesus was Jewish and so the church was full of Jews who believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of all that God promised to the Israelites. So God had made promises to the Jews in the Old Testament, their scriptures that they would read. God was make, had made these promises to their ancestors, and in Christ, God had fulfilled those promises. They believed they were faithful Jewish people who were believing that God had done as God would say, said he would done, had said that. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. So they're all Jews, and they're all practicing like Jews normally practice, going to temple and ritual, you know, practicing the rituals. But then all of a sudden, non-Jews start hearing the message of good news, and they want in as well. But if being a follower of Christ means being a part of this community, how are you going to put together people who are Jews and non-Jews because they live in totally different ways? They practice eating. They eat totally different food. The way, what they, the way they understand inter- and relationships and interactions with people is totally different. So how are they going to be together? And so that's tension that happens. And not only is there tension inside, there's tension coming from the outside. Because there is definitely some other Jews who think that Christ is just nuts. And that he was not the God, fulfillment of God's promise. He was just some crazy guy who's trying to, you know, wreck the Jewish faith and, like, change everything that they've all ever believed. And so there's these other Jews who do not like this new this message of these new Christian Jews. And so they start persecuting the church as well. So they got persecution coming in from the outside, and they got kind of tension in the inside. And we talked about how it kind of came to a, to a you know, big, massive 
explosion in Jerusalem where a ton of different representatives from churches, from communities all over the area gathered in Jerusalem, which was kind of the hub of the the Christian church, the authority of the church at that time. And they debated and they talked about whether or not the new non-Jews who were converting to the faith needed to be circumcised in particular. (laughs) That was like the main issue for them because that represented for the Jews a covenant relationship with God. And the Jews believed that as as followers of Christ, we are still in that covenant relationship with God. And if people want to be a part of that, they need to kind of buy in from the beginning. And so that was a big issue and there was debate and discussion. And finally it was decided they came to a unanimous conclusion that all that was necessary was for people to believe in Jesus Christ and then to follow four little minor rules. No blood, no fornication, no um, eating food offered to idols, and no something else I can't remember. It's not important. But um, those four rules, and then you don't, and that's it. And then you can and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he can save you and you are in. And so there's this sense of like almost a huge sigh of relief in the church. Like they've wrestled with their first like huge issue that could have split the church and they've come out even more unified than before. And so we've met different characters who've played a part in the church and in the evangelism that has gone on in the spreading of the good news. And we, talk, we heard about Peter and how Peter kind of started, lifted up the church in Jerusalem, and then he kind of bailed and started. He was one of the ones who was going to the Gentiles at first, and um, he came back and was part of that discussion. But then we don't hear from Peter anymore for the rest of this book. But we met Paul. Paul, who was like this big persecutor. He was a Jew who was persecuting the Christians, and he had a transformation. He had an encounter with Christ that changed the way he understood what it meant to be a Christian. And so he got on board and he became this person who would go from town to town to town talking about Jesus and telling the good news. And he had a couple of buddies with him. One was Barnabas, but then they split because they had a little argument. And so then he grabbed this other guy called Silas. And that's where we pick up today. Paul and Silas are taking up their kind of journey and they're going going to go back to some of these towns where Paul has created a church to encourage them. And then they're going to um, go to new towns and talk to new people. And so we're going to read about that today. So we are in chapter 16, number one, chapter 16, verse one. So Paul and his friend Silas went also on to Derby and to Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy. Now this, he was a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and so he took him and had him circumcised because of the Jews who were there in the places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went from town to town, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. Now, if you were listening to what I just said, and if, especially if you were here last week, this would this whole like paragraph would have really confused you because we just talked about how there was like, this huge decision decision come, made in Jerusalem about how the church was not going to require people who were uncircumcised to be circumcised in order to become believers. And Paul was like right there for it, you know, just arguing for faith, and that's all the Gentiles needed, and blah, blah, blah. And here he is, like in this very next scene, he goes and he meets this guy named Timothy, and he, he, his mother was a Jew, 
his father was a Greek. He was uncircumcised, so we have to then take from that information. He was not considered a Jew. Now, he had, though, become a believer. He was, was interested and was like a part of that Christian community there, probably thanks to his mom, but he was not circumcised yet. And so Paul, instead of being like, you don't have to be circumcised, man, it's awesome, just come on, was like, no way, we should probably, you know, do a little and just take care of that for you. I mean, I mean, if you were like, re- like really, you'd be like, wait, what? Why, why would Paul do that? Like, why would he... That's like totally contrary to everything he just argued and everything the church just decided. I mean, those things when it says, and they delivered to them for observance of the decisions that had been reached for, by the church, that's what they were delivering then. Hey, good news, you don't have to be circumcised. And all the guys were like, yay, you know, and it was like joyous and they celebrated in the streets. And so like, why would he then make Timothy be circumcised? If you understand a little bit Paul, I think, let me just put it this way. Paul was like a master strategist, okay? He was a huge, um, he was hugely strategic in how he planted churches and, and how he encouraged folks. And so my hunch is that he's thinking, okay, I'm ha- going to have this guy come with me. And he's going to have to speak to a lot of Jews. And you know, if he's not circumcised, they might not listen to him. That could be a a stumbling block for him to tell the good news and for them to receive it. That could be something something that just prevents them from even hearing him out. So in Paul's head, I can kind of see the wheels turning. If Timothy is going to be successful in ministering and bringing good news to the Jews, he needs to kind of be like them, you know? I don't know how they know if you're circumcised or not, like, that's the weird thing. I mean, do they like all whip it out and like compare? I have no idea. Like, how are they, how do they know if he's circumcised or not? But apparently it's like an honor thing. So in order for Timothy to be effective, he was going to need to be circumcised. And so that's why Paul did this. You see kind of that strategy there? Paul talks about this in his letters too. Um, in all things, you know, I want to be like them. To the weak, I'm going to be like weak. To the Jews, I'm going to be like Jews. To the Greek, I'm going to be like Greek so that they will let me tell them about Christ. So there is this strategy, this sense that Paul is saying, okay, I got, if I want to use Timothy, if Timothy is going to be used for God's mission in this world and especially to the Jews that where he's going to go, he's got to be like them. It's really interesting to think about how maybe we put up stumbling blocks to sharing the good news in our own lives because of who we are and how we act and what we're associated with. Because of that, there may be certain people who will not trust us, who will not listen when we maybe live out the good news or tell them about the good news. That's interesting to think about. I, I think about that a lot. How can I get rid of possible stumbling blocks? Or at least just be aware of what they are so that my ministry can be as effective as possible. So I'd encourage every, all of you to think kind of along those terms for sure. Um, okay, so they strengthened in faith, faith and increased in numbers daily because they continued to share the good news. So verse 6. Then they went through the region of Pyrgia, you know, in Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come opposite of Mysia, they attempted to go in Byanthia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Myazia, Mysia, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision. 
And there stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him and saying, come to Macedonia and help us. Now, when he had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. Okay, did anybody get a little confused there? Thank you. I'm like, not if you're confused. Good job. Okay, so they decide to go into this new region, and this region that they are going to travel to is kind of central Turkey, where central Turkey is today. Um, And the reason they go there is because they're forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go to Asia, which would be like kind of further south and obviously further west. So they're forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go to Asia. I mean, remember this whole thing, this whole church, this whole community, this whole God's mission being spread around the world, it's always guided by the Holy Spirit. This is not something that individuals just, you know, have a bad sandwich one day and like decide they're going to do. This is something that is guided by God, guided by the Holy Spirit. And so now for the first time, really, the Holy Spirit is not letting them go to a place where maybe they had planned to go. So the implication here is like they were thinking that they were going to go to Asia and the Holy Spirit's like, nope, you're going this way. That's the first time that this happens. And then they attempt to go to this other place that I want to try to say again, which is um, kind of way further up north in Turkey today, really close to the Black Sea. And again, the spirit of Jesus, which is the first time that it's ever phrased that way, the spirit of Jesus. The spirit of Jesus does not let them go there either. So they're kind of, and in a way, it's, it's actually comforting because the places that they try to go, the Spirit's like, no, no. But where the Spirit does lead them, that's a, that way is open to them. So it's, it is this, um, in a different way, it's kind of this author reassuring people that the Spirit has got this under control, you know? And everything they do go then is by God's design, by God's will, by God's desire. So they're not going to the place where God does not want them to go at this time. They are only going to the places where God does want them to go. So that's really key to remember. Um, You know, think about it. If you're like this city and you're like, why do these people come here? And like, how can I be sure they're not just, you know, trying to drum up their own support or it's just an individual or, you know, a random human idea? There's a sense there's some consistency in the fact that they are always where God has put them. Okay, so in the night, he has a vision. And it's of a Macedonian man saying, come and help us. So actually, now we understand why the Spirit didn't let them go to the other places, right? Because now they actually are going to go to a very specific place. And if they had gone elsewhere, they wouldn't be ready. They wouldn't be willing to maybe go this way. And so they're going to Macedonia. Um, That is kind of north of Greece. So really, the first kind of trip into Europe, if you will. So I mean... That's kind of cool. Headed into Europe. That's the first time they're going to be talking about and getting some some believers over in Europe. Um, And so then all of a sudden we have this language that's like, when he had seen the vision, we immediately set out. And nowhere else in Acts has this been in first person. It has always been in third person until this very moment. So like circle that little we because there's actually a few more we sections in Acts where the author switches the pronoun, I guess. What is the person, right? Author switches the person from third person to first person. And um, we're not, nobody actually really knows why. I mean, really, we have no idea why the author does this. It could be because the author was 
a companion. Although when you look at the way that this author writes about the events, it's kind of, it really is almost like looking back and, and glorifying the beginning of the church. So it's more and more likely that the author was using a source that was a first person resource, like a diary of somebody who was with Paul. Um, it's possible that this was like a literary technique that, you know, just to make things a little more interesting, let me just switch to first person. But um, there's some also some sense that this author, throughout the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, is very concerned with kind of authenticity and, and showing, like, I really understand what's gone on here, and you need to trust me, and what I say is, is, really, ha- is really what happened. So there is this sense that by using a first kind of first-person resource, like a diary or a journal or something, you know, there's, like, credibility that goes along with this story. Anyway, regardless, it's very weird because all of a sudden it goes from first to first to third and then third to first, but it's just, it's still the same story. Okay, so they cross over. They believe that God, again, it's all because of God, had called them to proclaim the good news. So, verse 11, we set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Simothrace. I cannot pronounce all these words. And the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. Now, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman was named Lydia, and she was a worshiper of God and was listening to us. Now, she was from the city of Thyatira, Thyatira, whatever, and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she did prevail upon us. So this is the first official kind of story of a conversion in Europe, and it was a woman, which is kind of cool. Luke um, and Acts include so many stories where it's something happens to a guy and then something happens to a woman, or something happen, uh, a man is described and then a woman is described, and vice versa. So there is like very much this gender balance going on in the stories um, that we have in, in Luke and Acts. Um, but here we have a story, and they kind of, so they go, straight to this land, uh, this city called Philippi. And it's really important to remember that's a Roman colony because they have the same rights as citizens of Rome do. Um, and so they are in the city. And then on the Sabbath, like good Jews, like they still are, they go out of the city to find a place of prayer. Uh, presumably this is maybe more, more of an informal gathering of Jews where Jews would gather to talk about God and worship God and pray together. Um, and so they sit down and there are women there. And so they speak to the women, which is again, kind of unusual, but they do that. And they make a connection with this certain woman called Lydia. Now she is from a city. Um, that's really interesting. The city is going to come back up in, uh, later books of scripture, specifically in revelation. Um, a church will be planted in the city where she's from. And the letter, Revelation, is actually directed to, it's directed to seven churches, and one of them is the church that will be in this city. So that's kind of a little interesting connection for you guys to maybe take note of. Um, she was a dealer in purple cloth. Now, purple was the color of royalty, and so purple cloth was cloth for royalty. And the fact that she was a dealer in this 
it's kind of to emphasize that the fact that they would include that detail is to emphasize that she was successful. She's a successful woman in trade. She kind of, she's a dealer. She's her own dealer. That's, again, also unusual. Um, and so the Lord opens her heart. You know, she just is willing to receive this message. And she and her whole household are baptized. It's possible that she's a widow, in which case her household would include children. But even if she wasn't, if she was single, her household would also include her slaves, the people who worked for her. And so their whole households, remember, whole households are being baptized. And so their whole, her whole household is baptized. And then she offers her home up as a place of hospitality and eventually as a place of meeting. And so this is really kind of the origin, and and we see this, of of the idea of home churches, where really homes, especially of wealthy followers, became open and available to folks, um, to the community, to the Christian communities in those cities. So instead of, like, building a building, they would meet in the homes of followers who had enough space, and they would pray, and they would gather, and they would encourage one another, and they would hear teaching, and they would sing songs, And that was the center then of the community. And so what we have here is her doing that, her offering her home. It would also be available then to missionaries who were traveling through. There was kind of a network of like homes where they could go and stay in in each city. And so it was a really, um, it was a really big deal and a really cool step in the the kind of, um, well, in the community of the churches in the smaller, and how the churches like form community in the smaller towns. And so that's, that's an, um, um, uh, example of that. Okay, chapter uh, verse 16. So one day, as we were going to the place of prayer, well, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, these men are slaves of the most high God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. But Paul was very much annoyed, and so turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, you know, these men are disturbing our city. They're, they're Jews and they're advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or to observe. And the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. So following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now suddenly there was an earthquake, so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. 
They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And at the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. And then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. Let's just keep going with the story. When morning came, the magistrates sent the police saying, you know, go ahead and let those men go. And the jailer reported the message to Paul saying, you know, the magistrates sent word to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul replied, uh, they have beaten us in public uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And now they are going to discharge us in secret? Uh, Certainly not. Let them come and take us out themselves. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. After leaving the prison, they went to Lydia's home. And when they had seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters there, they departed. This is such an awesome story. Kind of, we, so many times in Acts, the, um, the kind of rhythm of narrative goes so quickly. You know, it's, and then they talked to a thousand people and like they all became believers. And then they moved on. And then they talked to this many people and they all became believers. And then they moved on. And it can kind of seem a little generic and a little, you know, okay, we get it. But then every one now and then there will be these awesome stories of encounters that the apostles and the, um, the missionaries have with individuals. And how these stories impact individuals' lives and how they can maybe impact our lives, and we can understand what, what the situation is a little bit more deeper, um, and it can, it can really speak into our own lives. So again, one day, we are going to this place of prayer, and they meet a slave girl who has a spirit of divination. Now, this is really interesting because literally, it's a spirit of the python. That's what the Greek literally means. And it referred to the fact that there was a python, a snake, that guarded the oracle at Delphi. And so it kind of, it was like a phrase, kind of of a euphemism for a spirit of someone who could predict the future. So, you know, because, and so it's just interesting the language that they're like, you know, Python spirit and that's someone who can predict the future, but that's kind of literally what it means. And of course, what does she do with it? Her abilities. She's a slave girl and so she's kind of under masters, but they use her abilities to make a lot of money. And so greed is really the issue here. And if you remember from Luke and you remember from earlier in Acts, this author has a huge problem with greedy people. There's, this, there's an issue if you have a lot of money and you're greedy about it and you don't um, spend it and use your money well. It's not that you can't be rich. It's that you need to use it well. And if there's an issue with that, this author has a huge issue with it. So greed is what motivates them. And she's following Paul and us at the time still. And she's crying out, these are slaves of the most high God and proclaim to you a way of salvation. Now, the really interesting thing is as a non-Jew, as somebody who who would believe in the oracle at Delphi, somebody who would um, be a pagan in that way, who would believe in like the Greek and the Roman gods, um, the most high God is Zeus, actually. And when she talks about they proclaim a way of salvation, the way that the people understood um, what salvation meant was not the way that Christians understood what salvation meant. The way that they understood salvation was that it made your life good. It was about making your life happy and prosperous and peaceful and, you know, just, ah, oh, it's so good. I'm, I have salvation. My life is perfect. You know, and so it's really interesting when you think, is she calling that out from her point of view? Or is she calling that out from 
a Christian point of view. Because, so it's kind of a play. The, the words, you know, they could, they could kind of go both ways. And they're true if you think about them from the Christian perspective. Does anybody's Bible say um, the way instead of a way? She's call, she calls out that there are slaves of the Most High who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Yours does? Yeah, so that's usually, when that's translated the way, that's kind of looking at what she says from a Christian perspective. Because the way of salvation is Christ. And the Most High God, you know, as Christians hearing that would be like, oh yeah, that means the one God. But from her perspective, if she's yelling it out, it's going to be a way of salvation. Because the Greeks believed there were many ways to reach a happy and prosperous and peaceful life. And it had to do with how you interacted with the various gods. And so you see how that's just a really interesting phrase, and in, in which way does it mean? Um, but she kept doing this for many days. And so Paul became really annoyed. I love that, because it's like, you know, you think of Paul as this, like, saintly person. He's like, no, he's just really annoyed with this chick following him around and, like, yelling this out. And it's interesting, because if you read it from a Christian perspective, she's not wrong. And, and nowhere, this is totally a totally different kind of exorcism than we've seen before in the gospel, because the, the spirit isn't evil, necessarily. The spirit isn't evil, and there's no confrontation, you know, there's no dialogue with the spirit, like pre- in other exorcisms. There's no, like, dramatic exit of the spirit fleeing her body and going into pigs or anything like that. There's no, you know, crowd of witnesses that are like, oh, ooh, yeah, good, you know? There's no opportunity to share the gospel. It's, it's a very quiet, like, simple little, Paul's annoyed, and so he's like, get out of her, and the spirit goes, and that's it. And so what Paul, what you can understand is, if she was speaking from her perspective, what would frustrate Paul is to be associated with a spirit that performed magic, fortune-telling, and that was associated with greed. So that kind of could maybe explain Paul's annoyance, even though she wasn't really hurting them. But that connection, you know, just I don't want a connection with anything that could detract from the main point the main message and so he casts out the spirit and of course her owners are just so glad she's not you know obsessed with, I mean you know whatever possessed by a spirit they're just so grateful for that uh no they're really pissed that their like means of making a fortune has been taken from them and so what do they do they go and they get Paul and Silas and now you notice it switches to them like it switches back to the third person and so they take them and they say these guys are disturbing our city uh and they're Jews and they're like forcing us to do these things that we don't want to do because we're Romans. So, like, it makes it really obvious that it's their greed that's motivating them, but they kind of lie. They're basically liars. They're just liars. And, um, but the whole crowd gets behind them, and the magistrates believe them, and so they get beaten severely, and then they get put in jail, and they're locked up good and tight. And um, what's great about that detail is that it's so intense, and it makes the, what happens later even more miraculous. Um, we're going to stop there, and uh, we'll, we'll kind of pick up right where we left off last week, and I'll, I'll, we'll work through some of the details of that story. I wanted to read the whole story because I think it's beautiful together. Um, but uh, come back next week, and we'll kind of dig, dig through that more. Um, we, uh, let's pray. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for um, your word that is eternal, that um, continues to speak into our lives. God, we pray that we can be aware of ways that we maybe are preventing others from hearing the good news of your Son. And God, that we can overcome those ways. 
perhaps at cost to ourselves. But God, we are grateful for um, the impact of the good news in people's lives and how it does change people's lives. God, we're grateful for how it has changed our lives. So we ask for the courage and the strength and the ability to share it. God, we ask that you be with our friends and our families, our loved ones, those who are a part of our community who could not be with us tonight. God, we ask that you bless our weeks, bless our days. May everything we do be in service of you. It's in your son's name that we pray and by the power of your Holy Spirit.